Take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4. John, chapter 4. First week in May, I had a cardiologist appointment. Don't you love those things? This was just an annual kind of deal, and so it was no big deal. My name was called, and I was ushered back behind the lobby area, and the first thing I approached was the scale. Don't you love that? So I jumped on the scale, and I was so glad that the scale measured in kilograms. <laughs> Made me feel good. I have no idea what I weighed. <laughs> they took me back to an examining room, and the gal put on the blood pressure cuff and took my pulse and wrote down some numbers. The physician's assistant came in, and that's who I was there to see. And she looked at me, and she said, your blood pressure's a little high. I'm thinking, you just made me get on the scale. <laughs> I said, well, what is it? She says, it's 147 over 78. I thought, that's not too high. She says, I want to put you on blood pressure medicine. I said, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait a minute here. Now, remember, this is the 1st of May, and I knew that on May 31st, I had my annual wellness visit, my checkup for the year. I said, let's just wait, and I'll get to my regular doc, and we'll see what he says. She says, all right, I want you to track your blood pressure between now and then. I want you to write down the numbers. You got a blood pressure cuff at home? Yeah, I got a blood pressure cuff at home. I want you to do that, and when you come back in, we'll talk a little bit more about it. And she scheduled an appointment two weeks after my annual visit. Well, Connie was gone. So getting the blood pressure cuff out of the closet and putting it someplace where I could use it was a real hassle. You're all laughing because you've done the same thing, right? So I get into my wellness visit, and the doc takes my blood pressure, and it comes out 148 over 80. I said, what do you think about that, doc? And he says, no problem. So two weeks later, I go back to the cardiologist, and she said, did you ask your doctor about your blood pressure? And I said, yeah, and it was no problem to him. And she looks me square in the face, and she says, well, it's a problem to me. <laughs> I say all of that to say this. When we are looking at how to define a healthy church... There are a lot of different ways to define a healthy church in the culture in which we live. Some people define a healthy church as large crowds. Some people define a healthy church as a concert that takes place pre-message. Some people will define a healthy church by their budgets or by their ministries or by their missions. For a lot of different ways to define a healthy church. I think it's important for us to get into the Word of God and to see how God defines a healthy church so that we can be the kind of church that God wants us to be. Now, we started this series by saying a healthy church is built on biblical 
preaching. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder our soul and spirit, joints them all, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You begin to understand what a healthy church is all about when you look into God's word and you understand that it's biblical preaching that provides the foundation for a healthy church. The next aspect that we are looking at is that a healthy church is defined by biblical worship. And the reason that's so important is because the focus of our worship is Jesus Christ. And it is God's redemptive plan from Genesis through Revelation that points our attention on our Savior. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Last week we looked into the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, and we discovered that every knee will bow Every tongue will confess because he alone is worthy. The focus of a healthy church has to be Jesus Christ our Lord. And biblical worship begins and ends with Jesus. Amen? And last week we said that biblical worship is nothing more than having a lifestyle of Jesus. And so as we think about biblical worship, we want to make sure that we are focusing on the one who not only is the King of kings and Lord of lords, but the one who gave his precious life in payment for your soul and for mine. I so appreciated Brent's message to us during our ABF. It's Jesus who walks among the seven golden candlesticks. It's Jesus who was the incentive for the church to live a life away from culture that even required persecution and martyrdom. If it weren't for Jesus, none of that would be possible. This week we are going to look into a familiar passage of Scripture, John chapter 4. You know the account. It's the account of the woman at the well. But this is what I want you to focus on today, and that is this. Worship can be discovered in the most unusual places. You can find worship in places that you are not expecting to find worship. Now let's look into the text. John chapter 4, are you there? Look with me beginning with verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now stop right there. I want to give you a little bit of geography this morning. 
So as you look at the map, you find Judea, you find Samaria, and you find Galilee. Now, it's important to understand a little bit about what's going on in Jesus' life out of John's gospel. If you wrote a John chapter 2, you would find that Jesus is in Jerusalem. And he is there for the Passover. And he's getting religious pushback. And he's really tired and he's worn out and he needs to escape. And so he goes into the Judean wilderness. We're not told where that is. But we do know that he escaped big city living and went to his cabin. You ever do that? Escape big city living and go up north and go to the cabin? Well, I don't think Jesus really had a cabin. But the whole point is he wanted to get away from it. And so he goes into the wilderness. We find that in chapter 3. Now here in chapter 4, we find that he's getting some pushback again. From the religious, isn't it interesting that Jesus always got pushback from the religious people? I, I, I find that just fascinating. Because it was the religious people who studied the Old Testament. And the prophets predicted that Jesus was going to come. And there was no doubt if they had studied their genealogy. And the religious community was very concerned about genealogy that they could have identified Jesus as the one that the prophets spoke about. But yet they kept pushing on him, pushing on him, pushing on him. You know why? Because it was Jesus who upset the status quo. Jesus was never interested in leaving things just the way they were. Now, may I make an application? None of us should ever be content in leaving things just the way they are. In our lives, spiritually, that's called progressive sanctification. That's called growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. I identify it as being challenged and changed and conformed to the character of Christ, and that's a lifelong process. When I was in VBS, we used to sing the little chorus, I love him better every D-A-Y. Remember that? I love him better every D-A-Y. Close by his S-I-D-E, I will A-B-I-D-E. I love him better every D-A-Y. Some of you know it. Okay. Every day, I should keep falling in love with him. As we sang last week, over and over and over and over again. We sang that during ABF last week. And so, Jesus is headed to Galilee, and he's going to end up in Canaan. That, that's the point. Now, any good, respective Jewish person would go down the Jordan River Valley. And to do that, they would head west, up the Jordan River, and end up in Galilee. That was the normal route that everybody took. Now, they did that for a couple of reasons. One of which, the Jordan River Valley, was an easy route. It was a well-traveled route. 
But most of all, they did it because they didn't want to go through Samaria. Now, Jesus had other ideas. Because the text says that he needed to go through Samaria because he had an appointment to worship. You ever put yourself in an uncomfortable position just because you've got an appointment to worship? You ever put yourself with people that are different than you are just so you can worship? That's what Jesus was doing. And instead of going around, he was headed to Galilee. Now that's a trip of some 70 to 90 miles. And you don't do that in one day. In Jesus' time. You remember Mary and Joseph went the opposite direction. From Nazareth down to Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. And it probably took them five or six days to get there. So you have an idea about the time frame that Jesus and the disciples were going to spend getting up to Galilee. Well, in the middle of all of this, he has a stop to make. In the middle of Samaria, and it's in Sychar. And Sychar is a place that is well known in the Old Testament. It's a place where Jacob dug a well. Now, if you look at archaeology, you discover pretty quickly that Sychar, Sychar, Jacob's well, is one of the few completely documented sites in Israel. I mean, there's a lot of places that the Bible gives us that we try to find in Palestine, in Israel. But there is no doubt where Jacob's well is. It's in Sychor. Now, the well's about 150 feet deep. That's in something that you want to, to know about. The well is also a place where the whole community came to get their water. You need to know that. You see, the community just didn't turn on a spigot in their own home. But everybody went to the well. When I lived in southern Ohio, we had a cistern. You know what a cistern is? A cistern is a receptacle, a large receptacle, that gathers rainwater. And we lived in the country and didn't have city water. And so we depended upon the cistern to provide our water. And every once in a while, the cistern would go dry because there hadn't been enough rain to fill the cistern. So I remember my dad and I traveling downtown Portsmouth. It was about a 10-mile trip, taking all of our buckets and all of our jugs and going to the well and bringing it home for our family's use. That's what was going on at Jacob's well. And everybody in town ended up at the well. Now, I need to tell you a little bit more about Samaria. Because you and I understand that the Samaritans were not well thought of by the Jews. And the Jews went out of their way to avoid the Samaritans. But there was a reason for this. 
In 1 Kings chapter 13, you find that the Samaritans had all these high places. Places that they worshipped other gods. And if you go to chapter 16 of 1 Kings, you find that the worship centered around the worship of Baal. Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? And so that was going on in Samaria. Remember King Ahab who confronted Elijah and the prophets of Baal? You remember at one, one point, Ahab wanted a little garden next to his place? Nabon's garden. And he went to Nabon and he said, hey, sell me your little garden. And Nabon said, no, it's been in the family too long, I'm not selling. And Ahab went home and cried and complained to his wife Jezebel. Remember her? Jezebel said, not to worry, honey. I'll take care of this. She went out and killed Naban and took the garden and gave it to her husband. Can you imagine that as an anniversary gift? That, that was in Samaria. Now you move into 2 Kings and you discover that Ahab dies and the new king comes and he has an accident. He falls from a second floor into a trellis. And he wants to know how it's all going to turn out. So he consults the prophets of Baal. And Elijah is there. And he goes to King Ahaziah. And he says to King Ahaziah, why did you consult the prophets of Baal? Isn't there a God in Israel? Apparently not. The Assyrians come into Samaria. And they intermarry with the Jewish people, and they leave a mixed population. And so there were two problems. They intermarried with the Jews, and they infected true Judaism. You see, the Samaritans rejected all the Old Testament except the Pentateuch. And they rewrote the Pentateuch. Now, the Pentateuch are the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. And they rewrote them. And they changed the stories. The Garden of Eden was found on Mount Gizrim. Noah's Ark landed on Mount Gizrim. Abraham offered his son Isaac on, you guessed it, Mount Gizram. So Mount Gizram was one of those places that was very important to the Samaritans. And we'll get into the text here, and the Samaritan woman's going to say, hey, we worship on Mount Gizram. And so Jesus intentionally ends up at Sychor, and there, he teaches us a lesson on worship. To the Jews, the Samaritans were publicly cursed in their synagogues. To the Jews, Samaritans could not serve as a witness in court. 
They could not be a proselyte, and they were even excluded from the afterlife. You get the picture here? It's important for us to understand Samaria. Because it's not a place that a self-respecting Jew would find worship. But Jesus did. You still in John chapter 4? Let me pick this up with verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, and it's probably 25, 30 miles to Sychar, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now stop right there. The sixth hour, you and I might think about that as six in the morning. That's not the sixth hour. Some believe that it was on Roman time, and so it would be six o'clock in the evening. But I believe this was Jewish time because John was writing about Jesus and his disciples who were Jews going through Samaria. So it's about noon. That's the sixth hour. Now to me, noon's time for a siesta. How about you? I mean, it's one of the hottest times of the day, right? Talk about the noon sun overhead. Time to get under shade. Few people went to the well at noon. Mostly morning, so you would have what you needed throughout the day, and then evening you might go again so that you'd have enough to get you through the next day. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's noon. Why would a woman be coming to draw water at noon? Maybe because she didn't want to be identified with the rest of the folks in the village. Maybe she'd gotten so much hassle from the rest of the folks in the village that she didn't think it was worth the effort to come in the morning and come at night. Now, you know the text. This was a woman who had a past. In fact, if you'll jump down to verse 16 very quickly, you'll find out Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right. For you've had five husbands. One, two, three, four, five. And the one that you're now with, he ain't your husband. Even in Jesus' day, this wasn't culturally correct. So Jesus meets this woman who comes to this well to draw water. Verse 8 says that the disciples weren't around. They'd gone into town to get some food. That's a good thing. They'd made a McDonald's run. 
so that they could bring, well, I don't know if you can get nourishment from McDonald's or not. But, but they'd gone into town to get some vittles. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, oh, I'm sorry, I should have pointed out verse 7. Jesus says, give me drink. You, you know why he's thirsty, right? Verse 9. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, circle that word, will you please? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, since you're a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus is sitting there. This lady comes up. Do you remember how deep I told you the well was? 150 feet. You don't have a straw that long. And, it, and if you wanted to get to the well, you had to bring your own pot. And so Jesus says to this lady who's coming up with her own pot, hey, how about sharing a drink with me? And she says, you're, you're a Jew. You're one of them. How is it that you being a Jew, ask me a Samaritan. I mean, we're different as different can be. Ask me for a, for a drink. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's a pretty good idea, isn't it? The woman said to him, sir, uh, did you note the change? How is it who are Jew give me a drink? He said, oh, whoa, that's pretty good, sir. I now want to respect you. Now, if you read the whole text, you discover that the woman's identity of Jesus goes from Jew to sir. Over in verse 19, he's called a prophet. In verse 25, he's called the Messiah. And over in verse 42, he's called a savior. You see the pro progress here? Isn't that cool? Can I stop right here and just say, if we are properly worshiping Jesus, even in difficult situations, people will understand where they are and where they need to get in their relationship with Jesus. Sir? You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. What do you mean, living water? Are you greater than Jacob? Yep. He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons his life. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this well, from this water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty the water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Amen? Now, I feel like Brent Nesset. I got another hour to go. And I have seven minutes, Brent. But you know what? I get next week. So here's what I want you to understand about worship. The first thing about worship is it's water to thirsty people. Worship is water to thirsty people.
You feel dry? Try worship. You feel despondent? Lift your eyes to Jesus. You feel outcast and and despised and rejected? Understand the love of God that he's given to you through his son, Jesus Christ. You feel strange in the culture in which we live? Get your eyes off the culture and get it on Christ. Feel like you're struggling with stuff of life? As I said earlier, his grace is sufficient to meet all of your needs. And that water he gives to us that helps us focus on who he is is a well of water. And if we have that, we'll never go thirsty again. Amen? I don't know about you, but I find myself in this woman's shoes. I feel like I got to get going and going and getting filled time and time and time and time and time again. And I want in my life the wonder of God where he continually refreshes me. We can have that. But it's all about biblical worship. You see, the truth is, and Kathy, we're going to have to go to the next side real quick. The truth is, you can find worship in some of the most unusual places. (laughs) Amen? But it's all about a lifestyle of Jesus. And so if you and I are going to be refreshed, no matter what's going on in our lives, we need to partake of the spiritual and spirit-filled refreshment that's available to us. And that's looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now, worship, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What do you look for in a healthy church? You look for people who are consumed with Jesus. You look for people that in their everyday lives are living out Jesus. You look for people that when they're broken and confused and struggling, they focus their attention on Jesus because nothing else will satisfy. You look for one who can give you something that lasts. And you don't have to keep going back to that old well. And that's only Jesus. Do you love him this morning? Aren't you thankful that he's a friend to sinners? (laughs) I'm so thankful I don't have to clean my life up. He does it for me. But I also know 
that unless I allow him to be the focus and worship of my life, I got to keep going back to that old well. And it'll never really satisfy. Worship. Worship is water for thirsty people. 